Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. I have only had, I think, in my life one occasion where I thought that I was going to drown. I was probably nine or ten at the time. Our family lived in Youngstown, Ohio, and we went up to Lake Erie for a day at the lake, and I was swimming some distance from the shore, and at a certain point, I realized that I couldn't touch the bottom of the lake. And as soon as I realized that, I panicked, and I began to sink. And my head went under the water, and I came up out of the water, and I gasped for air, and I went down a second time, and came back up out of the water. And then the third time that I went under the water, I really believe I might have stayed there. Except that third time, my big toe touched the the floor of the lake, the bottom of the lake, and I was able to just propel a tiny bit forward so that when the next wave came, I actually was able to stand and make it to shore. This story, of course, could have ended very differently than it did, and as I've reflected on what happened that day, the question has popped into my mind, why didn't I yell for help? And I think the simple answer is, even though I needed saving, I was too proud. I I took pride in the fact that I was like a fish in the water. I I mean, I knew how to swim, and so I wasn't going to be calling for help. I didn't want to be that kid that the lifeguard has to run after here. And so, instead, I almost almost drowned. And, And thankfully, sometimes I think God intervenes and keeps us from ourselves. But sometimes we're too proud to ask for help. And I think all of us need saving at times, physically, sometimes spiritually. Sometimes, though, we're not aware of our need. Sometimes we need to be saved or delivered or rescued, but we don't know it. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking of a trip I took to Cozumel, Mexico with a friend of mine, Rick Thomas, and we were scuba diving. It was one of the deeper dives, and toward the end of the dive, he he began to rise up to the surface, and about 10 or 15 feet from the top of the water, he stopped, which was normal. You're supposed to decompress when you've been diving deeper than 40 feet, so that was all normal, but his sister, Rick's sister, Donna, and, and Oscar, the dive master, observed that something seemed to be wrong. And so they swam up to where he was, and he was unconscious. He was literally just floating, suspended in the water, and we didn't know what had happened to him or whatever, but they dragged him to the surface and onto the boat, and and they got his equipment off, and it appeared he wasn't breathing at all. And I stood there helpless. I mean, I'm looking at him like, there's nothing I can do. And Oscar gave him CPR, and at first it looked like it wasn't going to work, but then He continued and he began to breathe and the color that had been kind of bluish in his hands and face and lips now was beginning to turn pink again and he was going to be okay and they gave him oxygen and took him to shore and he was taken to a clinic that specializes in in dive injuries. But my friend did not realize 
that he needed to be saved. He did need to be rescued, but he just didn't know about it. And I think there are a lot of people like that in our world today, especially in the spiritual realm. I mean, it could be in other realms as well. You might not realize, for example, that you're drowning financially. You don't realize how bad it is. But spiritually, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And so they go blissfully through life not realizing they need to be saved. And so some, I think, are too proud to reach out for help, and there are others here that aren't aware of their condition. And then there's another group of people when it comes to this whole subject here. And this is a group that I think thinks they're beyond saving. I had a high school friend that kind of fit into this category. I was talking with him once about just putting his faith in Christ and becoming a Christian. He said, I can't do it. I said, why? Because he said, God can't save me. And I said, why? He said, I've, I've sinned too much. I'm just, I'm too big of a sinner. And I knew he was involved in a lot of things. I knew he was involved with drugs, and I knew he was involved with some immoral things and other things. I knew he was involved with some things, but I assured him, no, God can save anybody. God can rescue anybody, but he just didn't believe it. And he continued on his way, and his life did not end well. I found out, in fact, just last week in talking to my brother how he, how he passed away. He was involved with a blur burglary that went bad. He got shot, died. And sometimes I think we think we're beyond saving. Well, today I want to look at a story of someone that might have fit in that category. It's a woman that everything about her circumstances meant that she, she wasn't going to make it physically or spiritually. Her life was in danger. Everything in her world was falling apart. And she didn't know God. And you could have looked at her situation and thought, well, this is someone that's, that's just hopeless. But I'm so thankful that God can rescue anyone. My takeaway today is this, that God is able to rescue all who turn to him. The Apostle Paul was right. He said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that at any time we reach out to our God, he is able to rescue us. The story we're going to look at today involves a woman named Rahab. So some of you know this story. The date is 1406 B.C., so it's about 1,400 years before Jesus would be born. The people of Israel had come out of Egypt, and they had been wandering in the desert area for 40 years. Now, prior to that, you remember that they had spent 400 years in Egypt. But Moses had led them out of their slavery. Moses now has died, and Joshua had the responsibility now of taking the people of Israel and bringing them into what was called the promised land. And it was called the promised land because God had promised to give it to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Hundreds of years earlier, God said, this land is going to be yours. It's going to belong to you and your descendants after you. And now it was time to reclaim this land. And the first city they were going to come to was a city called Jericho, and this is where this woman Rahab lived. And, and so her city was about to be overrun, and people of Israel were about to, to come in and attack the city, and, and they were going to wipe everybody out, and they were going to destroy the city. And and right there, I just want to put on the brakes a second because you hear something like that or you read some of these stories in the Bible and I realize it's a little disturbing. I mean, have you ever just read your Bible and came to a verse where God said to the people of Israel, I want you to go in and wipe out everybody and everything. And when we think of something like that, it just doesn't seem like, would, would our God say something like that? And, and why? And what is this all about? Well, the simple answer 
is that God was using Israel to carry out the judgment he had already planned for the Canaanites. It had already been planned ahead of time. Now, sometimes in the Bible, when God determined that it was time for judgment to come upon a people or whatever, he did it himself, like with the flood or with Sodom and Gomorrah. But there were other times that he used another nation to carry out his judgment. And such was the case here. And I think this happens when a nation or a people is beyond redemption, when things are so evil, so wicked, so unjust, that they're beyond redemption. And I think this is where the Canaanites were at at the time. History records what the Canaanites were, were like. And, and they, they, there was so much godlessness there, so much violence there. And God even told the Israelites ahead of time, this is what they'd be doing. In Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5, we read, God said, you are going to take possession of their land, because, not because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to keep the promise he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. According to a website called theology.edu, the Canaanites were like this. The brutality, lust, and abandon of Canaanite mythology. In other words, they just abandoned themselves to whatever was bad. It's far worse than elsewhere in the ancient Near East at the time. And the astounding characteristic of the Canaanite deities that they had no moral character whatsoever must have brought out the worst traits in their devotees and entailed many of the most demoralizing practices of the time, such as sacred prostitution, child sacrifice, and snake worship. Another scholar by the name of Dr. Elwell adds, Canaanite religion was evidently the most sexually depraved of any in the ancient world. See, the gods they worshiped, the Canaanites worshiped, they, were, no, they, had, they didn't have any character or anything. Earlier, Josh was talking about our God. And I just, I just love the words that were used to describe our God. He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Ours is a God of character, of righteousness, of justice, of truth, of morality. That, that, those are the things that characterize our God. But not all the gods of the religions are like that. There are a lot of the gods of ancient times are, are godless. The things they do the arbitrary ways in which they deal with situations and people, but our God is righteous and holy, and he's so gracious and compassionate. But the hero of our story, the heroine, was a product of this group, the Canaanites. And one thing we need to understand about even the judgment of God is that he would always prefer that people turn to him and turn away from whatever it is. In Ezekiel 33, 11, we read, As I live the declar declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. That's the heart of God. It's his heart that people change. Now, when we meet Rahab here, she's part of a people group that's destined for judgment. In addition to that, she likely practiced the horrible religion of the Canaanites. It was just a godless religion. It was a depraved religion, I'd put it that way. In addition, she had a less than honorable profession. 
She was a prostitute. Most of the time when you read about her name, it says Rahab the prostitute. The Bible's kind of PG-13 a little bit. That's what she's almost always called. That was her business. And then we know that she was a liar as well. She was someone whose situation, like all the people in Jericho, was hopeless. And yet in the midst of it, she found God. And I take tremendous hope in that because that to me is the message of the story. God is able to rescue all who turn to him despite the circumstances, despite how bad it is. Now, this story of Rahab takes place in Joshua chapters 2 through 6. Joshua, again, was the one that was going to lead the people through the Jordan River on dry ground, just like Moses had done, and the first city they were going to attack was going to be Jericho. And Joshua was a great military leader. In fact, to this day, I understand that military minds read about Joshua when they want to learn how to fight battles, strategic battles. Joshua was a great military leader, but the first thing he did as they got ready to enter the land was to send some spies in, and that's where we begin our story in Joshua 2.1. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove saying, go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left. And they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, for they came to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, well, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they're going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she'd arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the gate was shut. Now, let me stop here for a moment. Almost every time I read this story, I don't know why, but the thought comes to my mind that the spies were not very good at spying. It's just like everybody knew they were there. Uh, it seems like they could have done a little bit of work there. I don't know, but it's like, yeah, the spies, you know, everybody knew. But this situation, this heroine of ours who is called elsewhere in Scripture as a woman of great faith, lied. And I think this raises, again, a kind of an ethical dilemma for us is, is this an example to follow? And I want, I want to mention a few things about this before I get to the rest of the story. First of all, I want us to understand that everything that's written in the Bible is not necessarily written for you to follow as an example. If the passage doesn't indicate whether or not it was good or bad, then, then you have to decide for yourself. In other words, we're not supposed to read the story of Rahab and decide, oh, this means it's okay to lie. You don't read it from that perspective. It's, it's just recording what happened. She hid the guys, but she told them a lie. But theologians do kind of go back and forth about this question of whether this was okay because to lie in this situation falls into what's called situation ethics, which is something that's very prevalent in our culture today. Situation ethics has the perspective that things are not right and wrong by themselves, like a lie is not a lie. Stealing is not stealing. What determines if something is right or wrong is the situation, and so it's ethics based on the situation. 
Now, I am someone who has the perspective that most things are right and wrong. They're just, God has his commands and there are ways of doing things. So what do you do with a situation like Rahab? Well, I also think that oftentimes we are faced with moral dilemmas that involve two bad choices. And you have to decide which one applies. This was even true in Jesus' day. Do you heal someone on the Sabbath? You know, you're not supposed to work, but, you know, you're supposed to do good, and, and then you apply the commands to it. In this case, I think she was faced with two choices, either lie, which lying is wrong, or she could have turned them over, but she knew they were God's people, and that would have resulted in their death. And so I personally think she made the right moral choice. He said, between the two choices, this is the one I have to go with. We continue, though, in verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Let me stop for a moment, but there's just a lot here. She says, of course, we heard all the stories, and we were, we were very afraid. But something to realize about what she said that's very noteworthy here, and I think it ties in with just the whole justice of God thing. She referred to the fact that when they came out of Egypt, God dried the, the water of the Red Sea, or that's also called the Sea of Reeds. But you remember Moses was there and parted the waters and the people crossed on dry ground and then the Pharaoh followed and the water came back. <clears throat> she knew the story. She heard the story and everybody there knew it was true. Everybody knew this had really happened and that they had, even though they weren't a military people, they defeated these two great kings. Now, what I want you to realize about what she said there is that the events she's referring to, at least the crossing of the Red Sea, happened 40 years earlier. It happened four decades earlier. Now, why? Why does that matter? Well, I believe that God was still giving them, the people of Canaan, a chance. That they were coming, Israel was coming along with the true God of Israel, and the people would have a choice. Are they going to repent of their ways and turn to the God of Israel, or are they going to continue in what they're doing? And, and here we read all the people were afraid. It wasn't like they didn't believe it happened, but they didn't, they didn't respond the way she did. Her response was very different. She's made this statement. It's a profound statement. She said, the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That is... I don't think we can appreciate how profound that statement was from her lips because everybody of her day, all the Canaanites, everybody believed in many gods. They were poly, many, theistic, polytheistic. They believed in many gods. Not only that, their theology was that different gods reigned in different arenas. So you'd have the god of the mountains, and you'd have the god of the plains, and you'd have the god of the sea, you know, and the god of the crops, and the god of thunder, Baal. You'd have the different gods, and so if you were fighting a battle in a particular place, you better sacrifice to that god. And if you're over here, you better sacrifice to this one. But she was acknowledging something here about the God of Israel. He's the God of heaven above and the earth below. 
She was acknowledging, by the way, that he's the God of everything in between. It's called a chiasm where you give the both ends and she's the, he's the God of heaven above and earth below and everything in between. She put her trust in the God of Israel. She put her faith in this God. That was the difference between her and the others. Now, I mention this almost every week that I'm convinced that the only way people get right with God is faith. It's not by being good people, doing good deeds. It's not about going to church. It's about faith. It's putting your trust in God who saves by sending his son to be the savior of the world in our case. And she put her trust in the God of Israel and therefore she was delivered both physically and spiritually. And again, my takeaway is that God's able to rescue all who turn to him. Now, why she was the only one, I don't know. Because it seems like the rest of the people just buckled down and chose to fight. They were gonna, they were gonna fight against the God of Israel. They weren't gonna humbly turn to the God of Israel. And by the way, if you wonder whether that should be the expectation, whether they should have believed in God, the answer is yes, I think they should have. The writer of Hebrews talked about this in Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. I think that word disobeyed is kind of interesting here. It's not what I would be expecting. I would expect it to say that, that she didn't perish with those who didn't believe, but it says disobeyed. The word disobey means to, to not listen under. They, they refuse to put themselves under the God of Israel. That's what, they disobeyed. The expectation is you should, have, you should have heard these stories and you should have put your trust in the God of Israel, but they refused to do it. We continue our story in verse 12 where Rahab is talking with the spies and she says, now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. Then the men, men answered, we will give our lives for yours if you don't report our mission. We will show kindness and faithfulness to you when the Lord gives us the land. She was basically saying, I'm saving your lives you saved mine and that of my family. Continuing in verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. So the wall was part of her house. Go to the hill country so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to them. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, we will be free from this oath you made us swear unless... When we enter the land, you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out of the doors of the house, his blood will be on his own head and will be innocent. But if anyone with you in the house should be harmed, his blood will be on our heads. We'll be responsible. And if you report our mission, we're free from the oath you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them another way. After they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. Throughout this series, we've been talking about how the Old Testament Bible stories all point to the big story. It's God's timeline. 4,000 years of biblical history and that God includes various details 
to point to the fact that one day he was going to send his son to shed his blood for us and all who take refuge in Jesus by faith will have eternal life. They'll be saved. And suddenly we have a story here where they're let down and rescued and, and Rahab is told, you take this scarlet cord and you attach it to the wall and the window going down. And when we attack the city, all who take refuge in your house will be saved. All of them. The story, of course, should immediately cause us to remember the Passover. Take the blood from the lamb, apply it to the doorposts of the house. Everybody get inside, because if you wander outside, you're on your own. Take refuge in the house that's secured by the blood of the lamb, and you will be saved when the angel of death passes by, passes over. Same thing with the story. This is the story of Jesus. It's pointing to taking refuge in him. And faith is the key. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will be saved, but will have eternal life. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know of the fall of Jericho. It's one of the most unique battle stories in the Bible. They crossed the Jordan River. They came to the city. God told uh, the people to walk around the city. Every day for seven days, just walk around the city. That's all you're going to do. So Joshua and the military did that along with the priests and they had their horns and everything and they just walked around the city. For seven days they did that and then on the seventh day God said, on the seventh day you walk around the city seven times and when you get to the seventh time blow your trumpets and watch the victory that God will provide and they did that and the walls of the entire city came crashing down. The army rushed in and took over the city and destroyed it, completely destroyed the city as God had asked for them to do. One part of the city, though, was not destroyed because God honored the faith of that family that took refuge behind the part of the wall where that scarlet thread or cord was hanging. And God saved that family. And so the story ends in Joshua 6.25. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her family's household, and all who belonged to her because she hid the man Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day. Jewish tradition, by the way, adds some interesting detail about the story of Rahab. They say that she married Joshua. I don't know if that's true or not, and that their descendants included eight priests or prophets, including Jeremiah, which would really be interesting if that's the case. We don't know that, but what we do know about Rahab is that she got married and she had a, a boy and the boy's name was Boaz. And the name Boaz might be familiar to you because Boaz was a guy that married a woman named Ruth. And there's an Old Testament book called Ruth. And they would have some descendants, one of their descendants. Grandkid, I think it was, was a guy named David. He became King David. And he, David, of course, was a descendant of Jesus. And then you go to the book of Matthew and you read the genealogy of Jesus, and you're going to come across a name, a woman named Rahab. And Jesus didn't mind including this woman in his genealogy. It is, again, the story. God is able to rescue those who turn to him, Jew or Gentile. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do we apply this today? Well, I, every week I just wonder if there's some that have not yet put their trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe you've thought in your mind, I'm too far gone. I'm too big of a sinner. There's no sin that you can commit that is so great that God can't save you. He can save you from anything you've done. 
As Paul again said in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God sent his son to be your deliverer, to be your savior, to take upon himself your penalty for everything you've done wrong. And he died and was buried, but he rose again from the dead. God accepted the payment that was made on your behalf. But you have to reach out. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, make Jesus the object of your trust. If you're already a believer here today, I want to give uh, a few applications here. First of all, even as Christians, sometimes we sin and we blow it. And I think sometimes we get into a rut and think we can't be forgiven either. And yet the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sin. That's the promise we have. And God wants us to walk in that faith, in that assurance. Second, I view Rahab as a story of what it looks like when a person lives out of their faith. Her faith inspired her action. That's what we read in James 2, 25 and 26, where James wrote, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified or declared to be righteous by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is making an appeal that our, the way we live needs to be born out of the faith we have. So have a strong faith in God and then let it reflect in the way you live your life. The last point I want to make here today is that this is a story about a woman whose entire world is falling apart, but she found peace in the midst of it. And I'm convinced to this day that God is able to do the same with us as well, that God is able to give us peace, that even in the midst of all that we face, it can be well with us. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.